Welcome to our newest episode of the Lebanese Physicians Podcast. And today we will be discussing the genetics and molecular mechanisms of autism spectrum disorder. And our guest is Dr. Maria Shahroor, who is a tenured associate professor at the Eugene McDermott Center for Human Growth and Development, the Department of Neuroscience, the Center for the Genetics of Host Defense and Department of Psychiatry at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. She's also an investigator at the Peter O'Donnell Jr. Brain Institute. She obtained her undergraduate degree from the American University of Beirut and uh, subsequently did her master's at the University of North Texas in forensic genetics and then at the Baylor College of Medicine for her uh, PhD. She worked at Harvard University as a postdoctoral fellow uh, for a number of years and then moved to UT Southwestern afterwards. Maria, thank you for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Maria, I reached out to you. I mean, I was uh, looking at LinkedIn and I found your uh, profile to be interesting, especially with the research on autism spectrum disorder, which is big these days. So can you tell us first a couple of things? One is how prevalent is autism spectrum disorder and how do you define it? Autism is actually pretty prevalent nowadays. It affects about 2.8% of children in the United States. That's, that's around 1 in 36, based on the latest uh, statistics from the CDC. And there are more males affected than females, on average about three times more. The international prevalence, according to the WHO, at around 1%, but it varies substantially across countries and regions, depending on how many studies have been done and the rigor of these studies. So it's anywhere from less than 1% to over 3%. So autism is more of a spectrum of neurodevelopmental conditions. It affects how we interact with society and the environment. It's characterized by impaired communication skills, social behavior abnormalities, uh, restricted interests, and repetitive behaviors. So these are the core symptoms, but but in addition to these core symptoms, there's a host of comorbidities or um, conditions that also are frequently seen with autism. And they can be, you know, anywhere from medical, psychiatric, behavioral, or developmental. Some common examples include intellectual disability, seizures, anxiety, and GI abnormalities. As I said, it's a very wide spectrum, and so every individual with um, autism is very unique. So if you've ever met one, you've only met that one person uh, with autism. Exactly. And that, that was my, my, that's why it's called autism spectrum, because there's a spectrum of disease from what we call, quote-unquote, mild, right, to more like yes. severe impairment of social interactions. Yeah, yeah significant impact on uh, on the quality of life. And, and given this, I mean, it's one to 3%, which is, I think, a high prevalence compared to some of the other, let's say, rare diseases that we talk about in uh, different uh, topics. But yeah. uh, so what is its impact on society, the individuals themselves and their families? It poses significant societal and economic burdens. It's actually more than the cost of cancer, heart disease, and stroke all combined. It's forecasted that the annual direct medical and non-medical costs on society are going to be around $460 billion in a couple of years. So as you mentioned, you know, it's a spectrum with individuals who have mild symptoms and those with more severe symptoms. They may have, you know, difficulties developing and maintaining friendships and relationships, communicating with their peers and adults, understanding what kind of behaviors are expected from them in a school setting or on the job. For families, you know, addressing the needs of an individual with autism can be super stressful and, and, you know, puts them under a lot of stress, not just financially, but also emotionally. Emotionally, sometimes even physically. 
Exactly. And I guess the cost that you were talking about is in the yeah. United States only, right? Not like internationally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's on the United in the United States only. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And one question I have before you move on is do you, is is the prevalence higher, let's say, in certain countries than others? And what would this be related to if the prevalence is different in different countries? Yeah, so unfortunately, there are a lot of countries where, you know, there's the entire continent of Africa, for example, prevalence studies have only been done in four countries. So, you know, they kind of tend to aggregate in North America, some in South America and in Europe, Australia, you know, so I think the prevalence really varies uh, dramatically. And there are some countries. So in the United States, the CDC study that I referred to is based on over 220,000 children, for example, you know, and then there's other prevalence studies, for example, in Lebanon, the prevalence right now is around 1.5%, but the study is based on less than 1,000 children. So I think we need a lot more uh, prevalence studies, but it's safe to say it's somewhere between one to three percent. There are some populations that potentially have higher prevalence because of specific genetic risk factors that predispose to this. And that's actually one of the active research areas in my group. There's some evidence to suggest that individuals of East African ancestry are at a higher risk, about two to three times higher risk than their non-East African peers. Okay, and we'll talk about that. Yes, this is a good segue to my next question to you is, is there a genetic component to prison spectrum disorder? If so, how much does it play a role? And is there an environmental component too? Yeah, so um, autism has a very high heritability of up to 90%. And this is based on large twin studies that have been conducted over the past decade. What does that mean? What it means is that the proportion of the phenotypic variance that's uh, due to genetic factors is about 90%. So in other words, changes in your genes account for whether you're going to have autism or not. There is a very small environmental contribution that's been particularly more challenging to pinpoint to prove actual causation versus correlation, because everything under the sun has been correlated one way or another with autism. You know, uh, the mom was too stressed during pregnancy. She took ibuprofen. She took uh, antidepressants and so on. But actually, there is no causative role that's been demonstrated for any of these potential environmental factors. I can give you one example of an environmental factor that has actually been shown to contribute to autism risk, and that is the paternal age, so the age of the dad. The older the father, the higher the risk of these, uh, what we call de novo or spontaneous mutations uh, that arise in the gametes of an older individual to cause autism. So there's a higher likelihood the older the dad is. Of course, you know, increased risk doesn't necessarily mean that it will happen, but uh, it does substantially increase risk. On the genetic side, as I mentioned, there's a very high heritability of up to 90%. And so far, hundreds of genes have been identified. So I would say around 300 or so with um, high confidence. About 3% of these genes are associated with very well-defined syndromes. For example, fragile X, Brett syndrome, tuberculosis, Angelman. And then there are about another 5% of cases are because of big changes in DNA. So we call these uh, chromosomal abnormalities or copy number variants, CNVs. So these are either deletions or duplications of specific genomic loci. There are lots of hotspots where this tends to happen more frequently than other places like the 16P11.2 locus or chromosome 15 uh, Prader-Willi-Angelman locus. So those are the two categories. And then the other 
really big category of genetic causes are these de novo or spontaneous point mutations. So these are just changes in a single nucleotide. It could be de novo or it could be inherited uh, recessively or uh, otherwise. And then finally, some cases, all of these that I mentioned happen in the germline. Um, in the blood, right? So, but there are some cases that are due to what we call somatic mutations. Uh, and these are the ones that occur only in the brain, for example. So, you know, hundreds of genes have been identified, but for the majority of cases, so all of this that I just mentioned accounts for about 35% of cases. Uh, so for the majority of cases, the underlying genetic causes have not been identified. And because of this, you know, each gene that's been identified to date contributes to a tiny, tiny proportion of cases. So I'll just give an example of the fragile X syndrome gene, FMR1, which is a top contributor. Uh, it accounts for only 1.94% of cases. And then there are genes that account for 0.08% of cases. So you can essentially start thinking about autism as this collection of individually rare genetic subtypes or individually rare disorders. Exactly. And that's, that could potentially be the reason why it's a spectrum and not yes. like a yeah. disease that identifies all individuals in the same manner. Exactly. Exactly. It's so heterogeneous phenotypically as well as genetically. Now, since you we talked about the genetics, can you tell us a bit about the work you have done so far on the genetics and molecular mechanisms of autism? Yeah, um, so my lab is interested in finding autism genes and identifying them and then in studying their function uh, in more depth in the brain. So we can find specific molecular mechanisms that they regulate and then use this information back uh, for diagnostics and the design of therapies. So there's a right now a big burden in the diagnosis side of things, right? It's done clinically through these questionnaires. It involves intensive time from the family side and the clinician side. So a molecular genetic diagnosis is something that we're working towards. And then the design of targeted therapies in the future. Um, we focus on the more severe genetic subtypes that have these debilitating comorbidities that I mentioned. And then I guess I'll talk about both the gene identification and then the more mechanistic side of things. We have two approaches that we use to identify genes. Our primary approach is by doing whole exome or whole genome sequencing. So this is essentially the exome is um, the coding portion of the genome. And so we can sequence all of that or the entire genome. And we do that in familial cohorts. Uh, these are families who have one or more children with autism, and we focus on uh, shared ancestry and ancestral diversity. So what shared ancestry means, basically, you can think of it as families where the mom and dad are related, either as first cousins, second cousins, or third cousins. And then there are entire populations that you can trace back to a common ancestor. So we leverage that in doing our gene mapping. And then the ancestral diversity refers to specifically our work on the African cohort that we have enrolled in our studies. And that's basically African populations have the highest proportion of genetic diversity in their genome, and they've been grossly underrepresented in these genomic studies. So that's something that's uh, one of our main focus in the lab. So, so far, since we started in 2015, we've enrolled around over 3,200 individuals in these autism genetics uh, research studies. And we have individuals along the spectrum of autism and from many ancestries 
African-American, Hispanic, East Asian, South Asian, and white. And it's an ongoing effort. We've identified several new genes so far that, you know, we're focusing on a subset of those for our mechanistic studies. I guess I'll, I'll talk a little bit about our second approach. And please interrupt me. I know this is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't sure how heavy I should go on the genetics or how light. No, it's good um, so far, I think. <laughs> okay. So the second approach that we use is something called forward genetics. And uh, we do that in mice. So we mutagenize the entire genome of uh, the mouse. And then we screen them for what we call autism-like behaviors. If we find a defect in these behaviors, we go back and we map the gene. And of course, the most important and final step in this is to validate the relevance of our findings to humans. And we do that by going back and screening for mutations in, in these candidate genes in, uh, in clinical cohorts. So the idea here is that you can, uh, you know, the human genetic side of things is forward genetic screen in humans that was designed by nature. But the one that we have in the lab, um, the forward genetics in mice, is more efficient. We can do this in a high throughput manner. And at some point in time, we can hit every single base pair in the genome and what we call, you know, saturation. So that was the idea. And we use these approaches together to support each other. Yeah, so just to simplify it in mice, what you're doing is you're causing the mutations, right? Yeah. And then yeah. seeing... Randomly, uh, yeah. Randomly, yeah. checking out... Mice exhibits any autism spectrum behaviors, and then you go back and you find which mutation caused these behaviors. Exactly. And then you also have to kind of validate to make sure, you know, introduce this targeted mutation to make sure it was that particular mutation and so on. But the uh, most important thing about uh, our work is that once we identified these genes through these to concerted efforts, uh, we're really interested in understanding their normal function in the brain and whether we can pinpoint specific mechanisms that uh, they regulate so we can, uh, you know, leverage that for targeted therapies. I can give two examples. We have, you know, we're uh, focusing on several genes, but one of them is a chromatin remodeler called KDM5A. And it works, you know, it, its enzymatic function is to demethylate a specific chromatin mark. And when it does that, um, you know, it affects the expression of the genes that it's targeting. So this is a gene that we identified uh, as an autism gene. And then we found where it binds at these specific regions in the genome and that it actually silences hundreds of other genes in the hippocampus and the cortex. So it's like a master regulator. And then, you know, through other experiments where we, uh, we can sequence individual cells in the brain, we found that actually when you lose KDM5A, there are very specific cells in the hippocampus that are super vulnerable to that loss. So now we're following up on that finding, you know, okay, why is it required there? At what time in development it's required? Um, and lots of other fun questions. Basically, yeah. to summarize it, it's more of a gene regulator, I guess, right? Yes, and it's and exactly that. It's a switch. And, yeah. And even a simple switch could affect a huge number of cells in the hippocampus, which could lead to uh, yeah. behaviors. Yeah, exactly. So we we actually looked at around a hundred thousand cells in the hippocampus. Uh, and found that very specific subtypes of um, excitatory neurons, not all excitatory neurons, but just some specific ones, and a specific subset of inhibitory neurons are affected. And there are other excitatory and inhibitory neurons and also glia and other non-neuronal cells that are just 
fine, you know, they're doing fine in the absence of this chromatin regulator. So it was amazing that, you know, when you lose it in just these specific uh, subtypes of cells, you have such dramatic uh, phenotypes on learning and memory. You know, we looked at the hippocampus because of its connection to learning and memory. The other gene that we're working on, we're a little bit closer to translational studies. Um, it's uh, called UV3B. It's mutated in a severe neurodevelopmental disorder with autism. So these patients have complete lack of speech, intellectual disability, and other features, uh, muscle hypotonia, and GI abnormalities. This gene encodes for an enzyme that regulates the levels of other proteins in the cell. So it's, it's like a quality control system. Um, so if it finds defective proteins, it tags them, and then the cell knows, okay, now I have to get rid of these proteins. So we identified this gene, and then we found a specific substrate that it's regulating, and that that substrate is actually a master player in several metabolic pathways. I think the most famous one is branched-chain amino acid metabolism. So you might have, you know, you uh, know about it from, you know, maple syrup, urine disease, and other um, uh, neurodevelopmental disorders. So uh, when we lose the gene, that uh, metabolic substrate that we found accumulates in tissue in the liver and in the brain. These are like the unskeletal muscle. And so because it was being studied in metabolism, someone has actually developed an inhibitor for an allosteric inhibitor for this. And so now we're injecting our mouse model with this inhibitor to see if, okay, we bring down the levels of this metabolic uh, regulator, can we rescue uh, any of the phenotypes we see in the mouse model? So this is like more you know, closer to translation, and it's uh, an example of trying to repurpose uh, a drug. So our hope is that if we study these specific mechanisms that are affected, we'll be able to pinpoint targetable pathways like this one uh, that we can then harness for the development of uh, personalized therapies. Yeah, so I guess to make it simple, it's like similar to what, what we're doing right now, let's say for, because I, I'm a pulmonologist, basically what we're doing now for lung cancer, let's say, so identify certain pathways and you do targeted drugs for these different pathways and probably a yeah. similar thing. Yeah, actually, I love to compare autism to cancer. Uh, so, you know, when cancer first started, I don't know, a <laughs> long time ago, people thought it was one big monster, but then they realized there are different types of cancer. And then they started understanding the genetics of these different subtypes of cancers. Uh, and that's how, you know, uh, they got a handle on uh, personalized targeted treatments, right? So I think we're just lagging maybe a decade behind, but um, we hope that, you know, when we understand these mechanisms, for these specific genetic subtypes, it'll help us usher in the era of treatments for autism. Right. Because, because currently, just to summarize to people, currently, there's no specific drug therapies for autism. It's more of a clinical diagnosis, not a genetic diagnosis. And then you uh, send... It, yeah, it can be. So there are, depending on uh, insurance you know, health coverage, and depending on the clinician, they might order in uh, a clinical exome done. And in those cases, if it's something that's been already established, okay, this gene, this particular variant and or mutation in the gene is known to be pathogenic, then you can uh, have a clinical, uh, you can have a molecular genetic diagnosis. But because autism is so heterogeneous, and we don't have, think of it as this, right? We don't have the full catalog of genes or mutations yet. But we're getting there, yes. Yeah. yeah. yeah so similar, yeah, so basically, for example, cystic fibrosis or primary mm -hmm. cellular dyskinesia, you can send like a genetic panel 
yes. for that. And what you're trying to reach the same thing for autism spectrum disorder is we'll send yeah. a genetic panel to see if yeah. they're a carrier of some of the major or minor genes that are causing it. Exactly, exactly. Yes, yes. Exactly. And that will hopefully have an impact on therapeutics. So currently for people like who have kids with autism spectrum disorder, what's your advice to them, I guess? First, early diagnosis is very important because there are some behavioral uh, interventions that can be done. Uh, and it's been shown that the earlier these uh, interventions are started, the better the outcomes. Of course, you know, the, the outcomes are very variable, unfortunately. Uh, so that's number one. Number two is finding out the genetic cause, the uh, getting a genetic or molecular diagnosis um, will be important on, on many levels. So one is uh, it answers the major question, right? Like why, why does my uh, kid have autism? Uh, two, it's important for genetic counseling and family planning. What are the chances that I'm going to have a second kid or a third kid with this condition? And then it connects them to other individuals who have mutations in this particular gene. So other families, or a network of families um, that are affected by that particular genetic subtype. And that's important because there are lots of foundations now that uh, follow these cohorts, like a natural history study, um, what are the, you know, what's the uh, prognosis later on in life and, and so on. And also to connect them to clinical trials, because right now we're at a very exciting time for translating our understanding of autism and neurodevelopmental disease into the clinic. So there are ongoing clinical trials. And uh, even if not now, there will be because of several uh, strategies that are being tested. Uh, you know, so I think it's important to get connected to your specific cohort uh, who are also suffering from the same uh, genetic uh, defect. Clinical trials for therapeutics, how far yeah. away are we from those? Yeah, so um, currently, like in, in addition to behavioral therapy, there are also treatments for comorbidities, like the seizures, for example, and so it's management of symptoms. But in terms of other treatments, there's a pipeline of gene therapies that's ongoing, and uh, but but there are also a lot of challenges associated with that. And the reason is too much of, of these genes can be as detrimental as having too little. And so in gene therapy, you have to make sure you're introducing the correct dose, correct copy number of the gene, and also to the right place, right? To the right neurons have to have this or other cells in the brain, they need to have the right amount of the gene. So there are a lot of challenges associated there, but there are also studies looking at something called antisense oligos or ASOs. And those allow you to kind of fine tune, like if you want to turn it more on, like the second copy of the gene, um, you know, we have two copies of every gene, one of them is affected. Maybe you can tune the other one up a little bit to compensate. Maybe the mutation is a gain of function and you can turn that off. So it allows for very precise control of, uh, of these uh, gene levels. So that's a very hot area of research right now. And then ultimately, it's going to have to be um, through mechanistic understanding of these genetic subtypes. And not just, you know, for personalized therapies, but also think of it like, you know, you can start grouping them by uh, okay, these subtypes have this a common defect uh, in a specific circuit that needs to be addressed or even brain region and uh, so on. There is another drug for a severe form of uh, autism called Rett syndrome that's currently, um, you know, just got approved by the FDA and also manages um, the symptoms of, of Rett syndrome. So there is hope. I think, you know, we're in a, at an exciting time for these rare neurodevelopmental diseases. 
And just to remind families, I guess I would just want to give examples. So yeah. not so because it's a spectrum, there's some mild to let's say severe, severe behaviors or diseases that occur with it. But there's there's well-known individuals, I guess, who are on the spectrum who have been succeeded significantly, right? Yes, yes. So uh, so I think, you know, we on the uh, research uh, medical side of things, we are uh, focusing on cohorts who have these more severe uh, symptoms with right. really debilitating comorbidities. But there are individuals who are, you know, uh, uh, their quality of life is better and uh, they're doing uh, well. Yeah, so absolutely. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to add as a final words, Maria? Uh, no, I think, you know, um, we're hoping to, to with our research, to generate enough momentum to, to start this self-propelling flywheel, you know, going all the way from gene identification to um, translating it back to the clinic. Yeah, so it's, I mean, just to summarize, it's an exciting time, I guess, for uh, autism research uh, at this time, because it's, it's turning into more of trying to find the genetic causes of the disease and molecular mechanisms, and then hopefully soon in the future, be able to find uh, therapies that target some of these genes and uh, change uh, the outcome for these patients. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Thank you, Maria, for all you do. And uh, it was great talking to you today. Thank you. Thank you for having me.